Welcome to Professor Forever. I am the Professor Forever. I'm still a little sick. I keep trying to go out and do things, and then I get really weak and clammy and hot and then cold. So many people I know are ill. I swear that Earth, Mother Earth, is really trying to shake humans off this planet with all the viruses and infections and anger and overpopulation and fires and floods and blizzards and tornadoes. I'm sure some people would say, you're just being overdramatic. Well, do you know me? But at the same time, I think what I'm saying does have some credence to it. We're not treating Earth well, and she's saying, get the hell out. Three Christmas tales this week before I have my actual Christmas, pre-Christmas podcast. It was the grandest Christmas ever that I remember. It was watching Christmas Eve. We watched Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and we were making popcorn strings for the tree. And I remember that my sister was fixing the lights by going along with one of those testers. She loved doing that. And it was the first year that we got the little teeny lights. And I was so excited. It was a multicolored feet, feet, feet long string of multicolored little baby mini lights. It was so exciting. We were singing the songs together to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. We always laughed when the elf on the commercial would slide down that snow and on the Norelco razor. Remember that? Are you old enough to remember that? It's a cool commercial. Even if you never saw it, I would look it up. So, I don't know, from 1960s, Norelco razor during the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer show. I think Burl Ives might have been the voiceover. I remember dressing up in my dad's clothes. I had on a shirt and shoes and his hat. A fine fedora. 
I came downstairs. People took some pictures of me. I was dancing around. Everybody was laughing. I watched kind of with jealousy as my older siblings pulled their envelopes off the tree. My dad always put these envelopes of money on the tree. But I didn't get any envelope of money. And I never, to this day, I still don't understand why. Was I too young to get money? Anybody can use money in America. But I loved him to death anyway, so I didn't really care. But each one of them opened up those envelopes, their envelope, and each envelope had a bright new $100 bill in it. Not bad for 1969. I remember Christmas morning, there were so many presents. There have not been as many presents in my life again. I have a lot of conflict about that, that I feel good about that, that that's nostalgic for me, because you know how I feel about consumerist America. But I remember that morning with such glee. So my dad being such a fantastic insurance salesman who won platinum keys for being the best salesman every year for as long as I could, was probably alive, would get this catalog with all the points that he earned over his sales year. And then he would split the points up amongst his family, and we would get to choose what we wanted with our number of points. And I remember I was so excited for some of the things that I chose. Oh, my goodness. The one that I remember the best was this slot race car track and kit. Oh, my God. It was so fabulous. It was really long. It went around the entire living room. I could make a track that long. And I learned how to race with both of my hands so I could race myself. And it actually had some competitive spirit to it. Oh, my God. And also a trampoline. I don't remember if this was one I chose or he just gave to me. A portable trampoline. It said on the box, if I remember this right, that you could use this trampoline also as a boat, like a little dinghy to save you because it was blown up and it was this big inner tube tire with some kind of fabric on it that you jumped on. It was very cool. And walkie-talkies. So... I think I've told the walkie-talkie story before, but I'm going to tell it again. So I got these walkie-talkies. They were very cool. I started talking and turning the channels, and my neighbor across the street got my message. And so we talked on the walkie-talkie that morning. He ended up being like one of the top graduates out of West Point and had a long military career. He used to play Hot Wheels with me. I think he was the one that got me into cars, miniature cars at all. Mark. That was his name. I try to keep people anonymous here, so I'm not going to give his last name. Mark S. 
I think about the S's. I also got a telescope, a really nice one. And I remember that kind of dusk at dusk on that Christmas, 1969. He took me out across the street. Oh, and I got a snare drum before I talk about the telescope. It just occurred to me. I got this beautiful snare drum with white marbling sparkles in the finish. Oh, my God. I loved it. And then the telescope. And my dad took me outside across the street into the field next to the S's house. And we set it up and looked at the moon. He showed me how to use a telescope. All harbingers of things to come. Two, after the suicide, my mom got me a dog. So our dog, Pokey, the dachshund, died very soon after my father died. Pokey was dad's dog, and he was just heartbroken after my father left this earth, and he died. Um, so. We didn't have a dog. There were no people there in that big old house in Wedgwood. All of my siblings had left. They had been driven out by their grief to different parts of the state in order to deal with the calamity that is a suicide. So my mom got me a dog. I named him Chris since it was kind of close to Christmas. So it was after New Year's, of course, because my father was found on the 3rd of January, but before March. Chris was a Siberian Husky puppy. Beautiful. You know what? He wasn't a Siberian Husky puppy. I've told this story so many times. He was a Samoid. He was all white. Hmm. All these revelations coming to me. Anyway, but he was big, even as a puppy, big feet, noisy, clumsy. Kind of like what I would turn into. He was the one I talked to most at that time because there was no one else there except my mother who was drinking and crying all the time, and her sisters, who would come over and bring food for us. So I spent a lot of time with Chris. There was a snow hill down the street of my neighborhood. For some reason, in my mind, the hill that people sledded on. It went down into a creek. And then if you went up the other side, you ended up in a part of a neighborhood called Greenbrier. So for some reason, I feel like the name of this hill was Mama Popper. Kids would meet there. It was very dangerous. <laughs> it was It was a very steep hill. The snow was kind of scant in that area because of the tree coverage. So there were a lot of rocks sticking out. 
you know, along this hill, especially as temperatures warmed up and then froze over again. So you might have a patch of ice over a big patch of rocks. And I remember seeing some kids get cut. And it reminded me of the ski hill at Mill Creek Park, where people try to prevent kids from going down that hill. And actually, someone that I knew, his brother died going down Ski Hill on a sled. So, I guess my youth was full of some interesting, precarious, and dangerous sledding locations. I would take Chris down to Mama Popper. And we'd sled and I take him on the sled and I think that was the last year I actually had a sled you know a red rider my mom told me that she was going to get rid of Chris because she could not, she didn't have the energy to do anything, especially train a dog. And I just was not a mature child. I don't know what nine-year-old can train a dog, but it wasn't this nine-year-old. That nine-year-old, which is this person now, but much older. So... I remember being very sad about this knowledge. I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I just knew it was going to happen. Why she told me before it happened, I do not know. But I think that she was insane. I think we were all insane because of the suicide. One person that actually helped me and kept me sane was my best friend at the time, Jean Grimm who no longer goes by that name, by the way. I have reached out to him and told him thank you for continuing to be my friend after the suicide happened because he would come over and we would still hang out at school and he would let me talk about it and very few people would. So, anyway. Three. By spring, Chris was going to be too much. My mom had told me and told me that I would not be able to keep him. Right around my birthday was when she said, okay, I've decided this is it. It's time to give Chris away. So I went upstairs to my beautiful room in that beautiful Wedgwood mansion. I looked at my beautiful snare drum I looked at my beautiful slot car kit and my Hot Wheels and I packed a bag and I decided I was going to run away with Chris. But I took him down to Mama Popper and we sat there all day. I remember that my second grade teacher who lived a her backyard was adjacent to the Mama Popper sledding hill. She yelled at me for being out there. 
now in retrospect, I guess she was yelling at me because I was out there so long. I actually got frostbite. And so as the day lingered on and it got darker and colder, I just gave up and I came back home and my mom saw that I had frostbite. And she showed me how to take care of frostbite in your own home. There would be no going to the hospital for my mother. You know, when I broke my ankle playing basketball when I was a teenager, I kept telling her that something was wrong, and she kept saying, shake it out. And I would shake it out, and it would be okay for a while. Anyway, she just showed me how you could put your hands in cold water if you have frostbite. And then you take them out, you dry them, and then you do it again, and you change the temperature of the water slightly. You know what it feels like when you put frozen hands into cool water? It feels like you're putting them into a fire. My skin's still a little sensitive today. And true to her word, Chris was given away to my mean cousin to become a junkyard dog. I wanted to go visit him and not my cousin, but my dog. And my mother said, you can come with me to visit. This uh, particular cousin of mine was her favorite nephew. But I was too afraid to see him again. I, I just thought that I would crumble into so many pieces. That cousin never liked me. He was very close with my brother. And I think my brother had started from a very, very... My very, very early age, somehow, getting people not to like me too much. Weird, right? But all of the people that he ever associated with, none of them liked me too much. Coaches at my high school who were his friends. Teachers who had gone to school with him. They all thought I was a weirdo. And I am. But it's not nice for your brother to do that, is it? I have had so many fabulous Christmases since then. There was a dearth of presents for a long time after 1969. My mother hated money, just like I hate money. And so the only problem was I had to make up things so that I could seem kind of like a normal kid. So when I would go back to school in middle school and junior high, I would make up things that I got for Christmas when, in fact, I got one thing and... Everybody else got all this stuff, and so I would make up stuff. But that was the years of lying anyway, so. <sighs> but that Christmas of 69 was such a fabulous, fabulous story that I've told myself. Because we were all one, just one family. The family that had no idea what was just hanging in the very near future. So the moral of these three stories, I guess, is to live every day to its fullest because you never know what's going to happen. You never know if you're going to get that dog. You never know if that dog's going to be taken away. You never know if you're going to get that telescope. You never know if you're going to turn into an astronomer. You never know if your dad is going to just go off into a reservoir and and shoot himself. You, you just can't know any of these things. So grab each day by the jingle balls and live it to the best of your ability.
Okay, before I sign off, I want to do this at the end. So if you don't want any spoilers about White Lotus, you can log off now. And we'll see you next week. Keep thinking. But I wanted to say a few things about the White Lotus finale. Can't help myself. Jennifer Coolidge is the coolest woman ever. I have liked her since I was introduced to her via Christopher Guest's movie. I think Best in Show was the one where I saw her first. Oh, my God. I have to believe that she's a little bit like her character in real life. And after reading an interview with her in Vulture this morning, I think I'm probably correct. She dated Chris Kattan? This is a one thing I want to say. What? I read that in Wikipedia, which we all know is absolutely accurate. And that's the only personal dating history they give. I bet a lot of people are hitting her up now. Now that everybody knows how fabulous she is and how she's out there everywhere. Hashtag sorry, not sorry, right? I read that she wanted to do her own final stunt. No way. I know exactly how you feel, Jennifer Coolidge. This is why I want to get back on a bike. This is why I want to get buy a slot car kit, race track kit. But I am coming to a point I realized the other day where I actually can separate what my mind wants to do and what my physical body can actually do without crying over it. I can, you know, make the distinction and be like, eh, it's okay. Now, Jennifer Coolidge is almost my age. She really wanted to do that stunt. That Mike White called derpy, a derpy fall. Oh, my God. So many luscious things around this show. I believe Mike White is reinventing the whodunit, just like the two Daniels are reinventing multi-verse movies and Ari Aster and A24 is remaking the horror genre. There's a lot of recreation going on. One last thing, the you, where she said, you got this. When asked about that line, she didn't remember if it was her or Mike White that finally came up with that line. Somebody said on a Reddit thread that Mike White was satirically sending up the line, which I think is exactly correct. She says, you got this. And then she doesn't have this. And it made me realize that that is a great example of a satirical line to use as a primer when writing. Here's how you could tell when you have a great satirical line based on using this example. If it is a line that is not tragic to begin with, like you got this, but then the behavior that happens right after it makes you go, oh, because she didn't got this. Then, you know, you've hit the satirical bullseye right in the eyeball. So thank you, Mike, Mike White, 
for providing that, and Jennifer Coolidge for saying it, delivering it the way she does, for providing for me that excellent, excellent primer on how to write a satirical line. Maybe I'll actually use it in 2023. Something's coming. It's here. Who knows? It's only just out of reach. Maybe tonight. Hey, talking to you has made me feel a lot better. Now it's time to take a nap. Okay, scholars, what are your Christmas memories? Share them with me. Thanks for listening. Keep thinking. She's got no lessons planned for me Because she's not that fancy She's a professor forever